couple of weeks ago, I guess maybe it was a month ago now, Ken 2 brought to you a message from Luke 6. It's part of a passage of scripture called the Sermon on the Plain. And it's a section of scripture in which uh, Jesus um, said, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Um, you know, uh, hypocrisy is one of those uh, accusations that's been leveled quite often at the church and at Christians. And, and, uh, and let's be honest, it, it's often true. Um, Ken pointed out that this word hypocrite, um, the English word hypocrite is actually the Greek word hypocrite. Like it's a word that actually doesn't even need to be translated. It's so universal, the word hypocrite. And I would argue that um, it's not just a Christian problem, it's a human problem. I would say that going all the way back to Genesis 3, um, I think that a really good synonym for human is hypocrite. We're all hypocrites. And uh, the the difference is, though, for, for the Christian we recognize uh, that those standards, right, that that the essence of hypocrisy is these standards and laws that we apply to other people that we ourselves don't live up to, right? But what Jesus does is he comes and he he lives the standard, right? He lives the standard, and and because of that, he sort of frees us from the standard. He frees us from the need to be uh, hypocrites, Um, and because of what he does for us, the grace and mercy that we get to, to, to live out of, we respond by, by seeking to live authentic lives where what we say we believe and what we actually believe actually are the same. And so there is some measure of us needing to do some self-examination in, in looking for the logs in our own eyes or as, as Ken said, the beams in our eyes as he pointed to the beams that actually hold this building up, which makes a pretty graphic mental image, doesn't it? That to remove those beams from our own eyes, not in order to justify ourselves, but out of love for the one who justified us. And so one of the ways in which we can seek to uh, identify those blind spots, the ways in which we're hypocritical, is examine the way that we pray. Um, I want you to think about the last thing that you prayed. All right, maybe uh, write it down. Like if you have something to write on or use your your, uh, notes application on your phone, whatever, what is the last thing you prayed? And you don't have to remember the whole prayer, but like, what was the, you know, the reason why you went to God? What was like maybe the main point? What was the thesis of your prayer, if you could remember it? Like, what is something that you prayed? Okay? Now, I want you to, to set it aside after you've written it down, and I want you to come back to it this afternoon after you've digested this and after you've digested lunch, and I want you to look at it. And when you pull it back out, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to, to look at, at, at the substance of your prayer and see what does that prayer say about what you believe to be true about God. See, part of the problem is that we as as Christians have is that what we say we believe doesn't line up with what we actually believe. And oftentimes, it's our practical theology, right? It's, It's how we actually live in the world that shows or even speaks louder about our true theology than our confessing theology. Take a look at that prayer later on and ask, does... Is that accurate to what I confess to be true about God? Because oftentimes, what we pray for 
Yeah, the, the, the thing, the person that we're praying to, what we're praying about for, uh, the, the way that we pray speaks volumes about what we actually believe to be true about God. And so examine that. Um, let's get started, though. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 1 through 13. Um, while you're turning there, I'll remind you of where we finished up uh, two weeks ago. We finished up Luke chapter 10, where we read this, this encounter that Jesus has with these two sisters. He's in this house, and there's one sister, Martha, and she is busy um, serving and, uh, and taking care of people. And the other sister, Mary, she's just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha comes to, to Jesus to complain. Tell my sister to get to work and help me out. And Jesus turns to Martha and says, you know what? Your sister's actually chosen the better part. You see, I don't need you to serve me. I want you to be with me. I want to teach you. I have something to offer you. I don't want to take your, your service. I want to serve you. I have something to offer you. Mary's chosen the better part. And so what we see at the beginning of Luke chapter 11 is this, this picture of receptivity in the disciples, or at least one of them, as they're asking Jesus to teach them how to pray. So Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And, uh, with that, let's pray ourselves before we dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you that we actually get to call you Dad. That you have changed the nature of our relationship. That because of Jesus, who has torn down the dividing wall between us, we get to enter your presence and we get to call you Father. Help us to understand the implications of that. Father, I pray that we would glorify you, that we would make your name holy, not only this morning, but throughout the rest of, of this week as we go and, and try to mirror what you're like to the rest of the world. Father, I pray for, for our time this morning that you would um, help us to see the ways in which we need to repent and remove the logs from our eyes. Help us to see the way in which we have used prayer to get from you what we want. Help us to see prayer as a means of becoming formed like you. We give this time to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So I want to begin with uh, sort of the, a main point for us to cling to, to guide our time together. And, and that is simply this, is that the Lord's Prayer is not a template for successful petitions, 
but rather it's a way of shaping our heart's desires. The Lord's Prayer is, is not for us to see as some sort of magical incantation to manipulate God to get what we want from him. Instead, it is a way of farming our hearts and our desires to look like God's. It is about changing us more than it's about changing him. And so the plan this morning is we're to walk through uh, this prayer. And along the way, I'm going to stop and point out 10 t- things to you that, that the lover of God will begin to apply in the, in the formation and shaping of their heart to, to look like God's. Remember, uh, Luke is written to a man named Theophilus, the lover of God. If you are a lover of God, then this is for you. And so let's jump in, beginning in verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying. That's far enough. Let's stop there. Now, Jesus was praying. And don't let the simplicity of that pass you by. Jesus prayed, and he prayed often. The Son of God takes on flesh. He moves into our neighborhood for some 33 years, and he prays. He stays in connection to the Father and the Spirit. I mean, here is this community of love relationships, this Trinitarian being who from eternity past has always existed in, in, in relationship to one another. And so if Jesus prays, Jesus connects to the Father, why would we assume that we don't have to pray? One of the indictments that I've heard more than once regarding our church is that we are not really known as a people of prayer. Yeah, we pray. I just did it a little while ago. I'll do it at least one more time. In our house churches, yeah, we pray for each other and things like that, but we're not really known as a people who is submitted and, and, and continually about this persistent prayer, this, this, this submission to God the Father in dependence and need for him. It's not what we're known for. And, and that's, I mean, that's par for the course of being a church in America. But that's not an excuse. What would it take for us to, to pray and to conform our hearts to the way God would have us conform them. And so we, want, we need to, to, to recognize here that God prays, Jesus prays, and he prays often, and he prays to stay connected. Continues on, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Um, we don't really know what John taught his disciples to pray. It's not really the point. What we do get to see here is that here's a a disciple who is looking at the prayer life of Jesus and he's saying, I want to learn to pray like that. Jesus has modeled this life of prayer for them and he's looking at this life of prayer. He's like, I want that. Now, oftentimes with the disciples, we don't see this level of receptivity. We don't see them really asking Jesus, you know, to, to teach them something so deep and so profound. It's kind of rare that we get to see this receptivity. It's a beautiful thing. And it's the, set, the, the first point that I, I want to begin with this morning is that the lover of God desires to connect to God. The lover of God wants to see prayer not as a means of getting what we want, but as a, as a means to connect relationally with God. Here's a disciple who saw Jesus praying and connecting that way, and he wanted that. Keep going. Jesus responds, and he said to them, when you pray. He doesn't say if you pray. He says when you pray. Jesus is is sort of making it known like the expectation is that you pray. 
that you reach out to God, that you call upon him, that you encounter God. The expectations that you pray. You know, uh, earlier I asked you to write down a prayer that you prayed earlier. How many of you can't remember the last thing you prayed because it's been so long? The expectation is that you and I will pray. We will connect to God the Father through prayer. When you pray. You know, uh, I just want to reemphasize this. That the Lord's Prayer is not uh, a means of manipulating God to get what we want. I think sometimes we've been taught about prayer, like you take something like the Lord's Prayer and, and, you, and you sort of stretch it apart and then you insert all the things that you want to get from God into it, but you're using the language of the Lord's Prayer and so you offer that up to God and he swallows it hook, line, and sinker and, and then you get out of it what you really want. Like, it, it's, it's a means of, of manipulation. Pray this and you'll get God to do that. And that's not what the Lord's Prayer is about. The Lord's Prayer is about changing us more than it's about changing him. And it begins with us having a soft enough heart to be changed. The second point, the lover of God has a soft heart that can be formed by prayer. And then he's gonna get into the prayer itself. When you pray, say, Father. That's far enough, let's stop there. Father. Now, uh, to, to Jesus' disciples who were uh, Jewish men, um, this wouldn't have been completely foreign to them to think of God as Father. Uh, for instance, Deuteronomy 32 says this, is not he your Father who created you, who made you and established you? Now, going all the way back to, to, to the very beginning, God reveals himself as Father to these Israelites, these people that he's redeemed from slavery. But Father in that way is seeing a Father in an authoritative sort of way. And Jesus is talking about calling upon a father in, in a relational, intimate way. And this is completely di a different way of looking at fatherhood than what the disciples would be used to. So there's a couple things I want to say about this. First, um, there are some Christians who teach, uh, some Christian leaders who teach that the Lord's Prayer is not something that Christians should pre pray today. That um, it is actually um, an example of an old covenant sort of, of a prayer that was given to his disciples, but uh, when Jesus died, a new covenant began, and so all things, the old passed away, and, and the, 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 the Lord's Prayer is not something that we were meant to pray, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But if you've been taught that, I want to give an opportunity to, to rebuff it in two ways. First, logically speaking, um, where Luke places this in the, the storyline of Luke is it's toward the end of the story, chronologically speaking, okay? Um, ever since Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' face is set towards Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows what's gonna happen to him there. That's his mission, that's his purpose, that's what he's going to, okay? And at the end of Luke chapter 10, he was at Martha and Mary's house. This is, uh, another gospel tells us it's near Jerusalem, it's right outside. So Jesus is, is on the doorstep of finishing his mission. If he's not days away from death, maybe a couple of weeks away from death. Why would Jesus tell his disciples to begin to pray something that's gonna be obsolete in a few days? The second thing is Jesus says, pray Father. Address God as Father. This is not old covenant types of language. What Jesus is saying is when you pray Father, I'm giving you a down payment on what's gonna happen at my death. You see, at my death, I, who have lived the righteous life that you can't live, that is earned, 
has earned me the right to call him father. I'm going to take that. I'm going to impute that to you. I'm going to exchange it with you. I'm going to take on your sin, and I'm going to pay the penalty. I'm going to pay the wrath of that. Sin that has separated you from God since Genesis 3 no longer will separate you. You get to walk into his presence, and you get to say to the God of the universe, Father, because of what I'm going to do for you. When he's instructing his disciples, pray, Father, this is a down payment for what's about to happen. And this complete different relational shift that we get to have with God because of what Jesus does. Yes, we get to pray this prayer. It's not obsolete. Um, Second thing I want to say about this. Fatherhood in our culture has been almost destroyed. The idea of it the connotations of it, what people picture in their mind oftentimes of fatherhood is not what God intended. And so if you're here this morning and, and fatherhood for you is painful, fatherhood for you brings all sorts of things to mind that, that, are, that are negative. You've seen what your father has done. You've seen that, or maybe what he's not done because he was absent, because he was gone. Or because of what he's done, you've seen the type of man and the character that he has, and you, when you hear the word father, and you're supposed to apply that to God, all of a sudden you remake God in the image of your earthly dad. And that's, it's not the starting place. But you can't help it because of what fatherhood has come to mean to you because of what your earthly dad did. And see, I, I want to start with, and maybe this is where you need to start is going to God the Father and saying, God, will you redeem fatherhood for me? Will you redeem father? I mean, and I've heard people say, well, if the word father, if that term doesn't, if, it, if it's too much pain for you, if it's too traumatic for you to, to, to call God or refer to God or think of God as a father, then don't. Think of him as something else. And I say, if you do that, you will miss a vital element of who God is and how he's revealed himself to you. There is something about a father-child relationship that is it's irreplaceable by any other kind of relationship. God wants you to acknowledge him as father, see him as father, see all the work he's done throughout redemptive history, look at his identity, look at who he is, and address him as father because there's something about that relationship that is so profound and it's so necessary for you. And so go and ask God to redeem fatherhood for you. Ask him to change that for you so that you don't see him through the lens of your earthly dad. Point number three, the love of God embraces a father-child relationship. Continues on, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. You know, though the nature of our relationship with God changes because of Jesus, God himself doesn't change. We need to understand that, that for us to be able to call God Father, it's, it's Jesus because of his justification, it's his righteousness for us, that we're elevated up. It's not that God is demeaned down so that we can call him Father. And the truth of the matter is, is his name is holy. He is the great I am. He is the uncreated one. He is the Alpha and Omega. Like, his name matters. It matters. He says this, Leviticus 22, so you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord and you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. 
The way that he intended for his name to be honored and kept holy was that the people that he rescued, that he gave his name to, would live in obedience to a law, a law which he gave them for their thriving, for their benefit. If they lived according to this law, it would benefit them. If they lived according to this law, then they would show the whole world what God was like. And his name would be kept holy. However, if they disobeyed that law, they would drag his name through the mud, and that's what they did. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You know, God's standard, God's law, is, it's high. And we can't meet it. It's impossible. It's impossible. And, and the Israelites failed to meet that standard, and the result was is that they demeaned the name of God. And so we get to the point, and almost at the end of the, the New Testament, or the Old Testament, where we read in Ezekiel, so I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land. I scattered them among the nations in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. But when they came to the nations, they profaned my holy name. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. The standard is high. It's impossible. We can't meet it. But the good news is God's mercy and his grace seen in Jesus is just as high. And so Jesus comes and he lives that righteous name and, and he gives us that name so that we can reflect accurately to the world what God the Father is like. And it's not saying, hey, everybody, see how great God is? Not because of how great I am, but because of how great a salvation I've received. And God's name is holy, and it's lifted up, and it's glorified. You see, God's name matters, and it should matter to us. And so if we as Christians, if we would say, you know, God's, God's law doesn't matter, or God's opinion on this matter it doesn't matter, God, God's, God's instruction on what marriage is, or what gender is, or what the value of human life is based on, or any of these things, if we would demean those things, we profane the name of God because we take away the truth or diminish or suppress the truth, as Paul would say. That's, it's dragging God's name through the mud. God's name matters, and it should matter to us. Point number four is the lover of God wants to see the Father glorified. The prayer continues, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. You know, the Lord's prayer is an expression of a desire for a new reality. It's a, it's a recognition that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's a firm understanding that this world uh, is not going to be the way it's supposed to be by human effort. We cannot look to one another to save this or redeem this or make this right. To, to pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, is to, to acknowledge that there is a better reality that we hope for. We hope for the kingdom of God. Luke begins uh, this book by, by talking about two people named Simeon and Anna, and, uh, and, and they meet Jesus as a child, and when they see Jesus, they're filled with ecstatic hope and joy because their whole lives, their whole lives have been about seeing the kingdom of God come, and here Jesus is, and he's the glimpse of what's coming, and they're, 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 they're so excited because they're seeing it, because they've longed for the kingdom of heaven. And I think if there's, there's one of the biggest aspects of this prayer that we don't understand is longing for the kingdom of heaven. I think most of us, if we were to examine what we pray for, we would see it's not the kingdom of heaven. It's not your kingdom come, it's my kingdom come. Uh, a few weeks ago, we were camping in Maine, 
and Maine is um, one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. Beautiful. We got back, and uh, I go on Zillow, and I start looking for a cabin in the woods in Maine. I wasn't looking for a job in Maine, but I was looking for a cabin in the woods in Maine. I found an island that's about an acre big for $56,000. And I started to think about how do I make that work? You can't build on it, so like, is there a way like I could take my camper and like airlift it on top of the island? Maybe take out a second mortgage on the house, you know? Pick up a second job, something like that, you know? How do I, how do I divert my time, my energy, and my resources in order to make this dream happen? What am I trying to do? Have heaven now. Um, my, my dream car is a 63 Lincoln Continental, four-door suicide doors, you know? And I can't decide on the, hot, the, the hard top or, or, or a convertible, but, but it's gonna be awesome, and, and that's like what I wanna drive around for eternity. That's what I want. There's nothing wrong with that. But if I divert my talent, my time, my resources away from, from, from the stewardship of, of, of this kingdom calling towards that, what am I doing? I'm trying to have the kingdom now. The reality is there's so many things that we're pouring our lives into. And I think for one of us, for one of those things is, is politics. There's, there's nothing wrong with voting. There's nothing wrong with having an opinion. There's nothing wrong. But if, 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 you're, if your stack of communication and your gripes and complaints, if, 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 if you're diverting your time and your resources and all that stuff towards, towards making the United States the kingdom of heaven and, and you're not talking to your neighbor about Jesus, who's, what kingdom do you want? to long for the kingdom of heaven. When we pray, God, your kingdom, Father, your kingdom come. That's the only thing that makes things right. That's the only thing that will heal. Point number five, the lover of God longs for the Father's kingdom. And the Lord's prayer is an expression of that desire for a new reality. Keeps going. Verse three, give us each day our daily bread. Now there's three things about the, the way this, the, this is set up, the verbiage of this sentence, the way that it's put together. There's three things that Jesus is pointing us to. The first is earlier on in Luke, he sends out his 12 disciples at one point, and then he sends out 72 other disciples to go and tell people about the kingdom of God, to, to heal people, to cast out demons. And what does he say to them? He says, don't take any bread. Don't take any provision with you. In other words, trust that along the way, I will provide for what you need. Trust in me. The second thing that we're, we're meant to see is, is the, the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, there's this very large group of people, 5,000 men plus women and children. Um, they've been following Jesus all day, uh, listening to him. They're, they're tired, they're hungry, and, uh, and the disciples want to either go away or feed them. And, and Jesus takes just a small kid's lunch, and he essentially provides a meal for thousands of people with baskets and baskets left over. And it's this picture of they have nothing, but he has everything they need. Now, he doesn't feed them for the rest of their lives. He feeds them that day. The third picture that we're meant to see is, is the manna in the wilderness. The, the Israelites brought free from, from uh, slavery in Egypt, and they end up spending 40 years wandering around in the desert. And in that time, God provided. You know, their sandals didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their uh, cooking utensils didn't wear out. 
None of that wore out. And as far as what their bodies needed, I mean, the, the divine encounters of water being provided for them. But then there's this manna, and every day they get up and they walk out, and there's this bread-like substance laying all over the ground, and they're meant to collect it to be enough for one day only. And if they collect more, the next morning they find that what they collected in excess is, is, is putrid. It's full of worms because they didn't trust God. He said, trust me. Be dependent upon me. I would say that this is probably the other part of this, this prayer that we struggle with the most. This dependent, like, why are we not known as a people of prayer? Because we don't need. When you experience Christian communities in other parts of the world where there is great poverty or where there is oppression and injustice and you find a people that are always on their knees calling out to God, always, because they need him and we don't. We don't need God. At least we don't think that we do. I mean, we sit down to the table to eat dinner and we might give God lip service, thank you for this food, right? But do we really believe that it came from him? Or are we saying to ourselves, it's my job that's put this food on the table. It's my education that's clothed these kids, right? It's, it's my intellect, it's my, my, my work ethic that has provided this house. We provided this, I provided this. And we don't stop to think that, that all of those blessings, the very mind that he gave you, the hands that he gave you, even the work ethic, that it comes from him. But we don't see that it comes from him and we don't see that he's provided for us. So we worry about tomorrow. If you should lose that job today, would he still take care of you tomorrow? See, praying the Lord's prayers is a reminder to us of, of where our provision actually comes from. So point number six, the lover of God acknowledges faithful dependence. Moving on, the next line, and forgive us our sins. You know, prayer is, is acknowledging our ongoing need for mercy and grace. Forgive us our sins. Now, I, I mentioned earlier um, that, that there are Christian leaders who teach that we, we should not pray the Lord's Prayer anymore. And one of the reasons that they say that is because of this line right here. And so they take us to 1 Peter 3.18, which says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus was crucified once, and that was enough. And if you are in Christ, then your sins are forgiven. End of story. So you don't need to pray, Father, forgive me. You're already forgiven. Why ask God to do something that he's already done? Well, what they fail to see is that you're, they're, they're right. It's not, it's not a needing God to be punished all over again. We're, we're not re-crucifying Jesus, but what we're essentially doing is acknowledging that sin is a present reality for us, in us, and if we don't address it before God, it will have a devastating effect on our life. The truth is, is that what Jesus does for us at the cross is it, it, it removes the punishment of sin from our shoulders, right? Because of what Jesus does, he takes the punishment for us. We, we're not gonna be punished for our sins. Punishment is, we're free from it. Praise God, right? But through what Jesus does for us at the cross and the sending of his spirit, he also gives us power over sin. We're not forced to sin. We don't have to sin. 
It's victory there. Praise God. But the reality is, on this side of heaven, on this side of the kingdom of of God's fulfillment, this side of Jesus coming back, we still live in the presence of sin. There's still an enemy out there. There's still a world that goes after our desires and tells us lies, and there's still our flesh. Paul says this in Romans 6, 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. He's writing to Christians with the understanding, yes, you've been freed from the punishment of sin. Yes, you've been freed from the power of sin, but the presence of sin is still a real thing, and you can give it control over you unless you acknowledge it before God. He goes on to say about this war of the flesh in Romans 7, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. There's this recognition that our flesh is still at war with the Spirit of God within us over sin. And the flesh wins when we deny its existence but to go to God the Father and say, forgive me for this sin, to name the sin, to agree with God that this is wrong. It's not re-crucifying Jesus. Rather, it's coming clean and it's maintaining that father-child relationship in seeking after his own heart rather than trying to give in to that life of sin. The lover of God needs ongoing mercy. Point number seven. The prayer continues. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, if you know the Lord's Prayer from Matthew, um, you'll probably see some differences. Uh, Luke's is shorter. It's an abbreviated version of the Lord's Prayer. At this point in Matthew's version, I I, I think it says, uh, forgive us as our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's not what Luke says. Now, I'm not saying that's not what Jesus said. But Luke is going to emphasize a point that Matthew doesn't emphasize because he's got a different audience. Matthew is writing to high-class religious Jewish people. Luke is writing to the poor and the powerless of Greek society. He's writing to slaves, orphans, widows. I mean, Jesus hangs out with with women, allows uh, children to sit on his lap. Like... The, the, the picture of Luke that Luke shows us is, is Jesus who cares about the poor and the powerless. So one of the issues contextually that Luke is dealing with is a common practice of indebtedness among neighbors, among people, material indebtedness. And so where it says, as we forgive those who are indebted to us, Luke is actually talking about material debt. He's not talking about sin. I'll clarify this. I'm not saying that Luke isn't saying we don't have to forgive not what he's saying. But here's what he is saying. He's saying, you have been forgiven of sin, which is a great debt against God. So you forgive material indebtedness, which is a minor debt against you. In other words, the mercy that we've been experiencing because of God's mercy and grace is, is one we give to others. Point number eight, the lover of God extends mercy to others. Uh, last line of the prayer, and lead us not into temptation. You need to see the prayer is an act of following God. Um, put the emphasis on lead us. Right? Now, the word temptation in Luke 
um, is, is always negative. Sometimes in the New Testament, we see the word temptation translated as trial. And like, so like trial can produce a positive effect. It can produce perseverance, endurance. It re- results in, in greater faith, right? A positive effect. In Luke, temptation is always negative and it deals with sin, okay? First thing to understand about, about that. Um, but Jesus is wanting us to connect to Psalm 23, 3 with his language that he uses. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The emphasis is on allowing the Father to lead us through life. Now, it is not saying that God may lead us to the edge of sin and push us off the cliff. It's not what it's saying. Uh, James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It's not, it's not what's going on here. I think we often have this idea of, of sin is that like we're just walking down the road of life and there's a pit in front of us but it's very well camouflaged and we can't see it and all of a sudden we fall into it and we've committed adultery and we've got a porn habit and uh, we're alcoholics and like we've fallen into great sin but we never even saw it coming. It just happened. And that's, that's not the reality of sin. The reality is, is that we do have an enemy, Satan, who wants to convince us to believe lies. And we do have a world around us that wants us to believe lies. But we also have a flesh that desires to believe the lies. So that when it comes to sin, oftentimes we're not falling in it, we're diving in it head first. This part of the prayer is about acknowledging our need for God to lead us. Not the world to lead us, not Satan to lead us, not our flesh to lead us, but we need to be led by him for his name's sake. Point number nine, the lover of God follows where the Father leads. So Jesus concludes the prayer itself, um, but the teaching continues, and it, and it teaches in sort of an odd way. Um, he teaches uh, using two scenarios that kind of begin with, um, could you imagine, or can you imagine? And he gives us like two like crazy scenarios, at least to his audience, that the, the, the scenarios are crazy. I can't believe he would use that as an as a, as analogy, all right? Crazy scenarios. So uh, verse five, uh, and he said to them, in other words, Imagine this, okay? Which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So contextually, we gotta understand this. First of all, the audience that Jesus is talking to does not live in four bedroom, three bath houses under 2,400 square feet of roof, okay? They live in one room structures that function as kitchen, dining, living, and bedroom. So that at night, the furniture is pushed off to the side, a bedroll is rolled across the floor, and the family sleeps communally in the same room. Okay? Additionally, because they're this communal living, these single room structures, they're not on parcels or acreages. All right? There's not an HOA with everybody's got 0.56 acres. They live really, really close together. And, and, and because of this communal way of living, Jesus telling this story, it's crazy to them. 
A guy comes, and he's visiting his friend, but his friend doesn't have anything to eat, so he goes to his next-door neighbor, and he asks for food. Now, in that culture, the neighbor would have been like, hey, no problem, because a need of the village would have been seen as a need of the whole village. It would have been something that, that they all would have participated in, and, 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 and there wouldn't have been any, any, any issue. And so Jesus telling the story of a guy refusing to get out of bed, they'd be like, that's crazy, that doesn't happen. That's not the way we live. But see, Jesus is trying to get a point that when God answers prayer, it's not because he's obligated to do so because of some sort of social norm. What Jesus wants to drill down on is perseverance. And that's why we see what we see in verse nine. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. I want you to see in that. Jesus says, I, I want you to ask. I want you to seek. I want you to knock. And it's not so that you annoy the Father. But in the doing of it, in the seeking, in the asking, in the knocking, something changes in your own heart that conforms to the heart of God. For everyone who asks receives, and, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now people look at that verse and say, I prayed this prayer and God didn't come through for me. Okay, stop. Did you pray according to God's heart? Did you pray in accordance with God's desire? Were you praying for his holy name? Were you praying for his kingdom come? Like, were you praying, like, was your heart praying something that is in line with the heart of God? Well, no. Well, you know, read it in context then. The context of this is that the Lord's Prayer is not a way of getting what you want. It's not a means of manipulating God. It is a means of having your own heart shaped on his heart. So point number 10. The lover of God prays with perseverance. Now, I want to try to use an analogy that will hopefully give us some better understanding. Um, I know of three ways of changing the shape of metal. Uh, I'm not an expert on this, but I, I know that one of the ways that you can change the shape of a hunk of metal is through a crucible and a cast. Melt the metal down, turn it into a liquid, pour it into a cast. The cast cools, and what comes out? Different object than what you had before. I think for a lot of us, this is our conversion experience. Before Christ, we are a hunk of junk. And we come to the realization that we're a hunk of junk and that we need help. And we turn to God for the grace and the mercy that we find in Jesus, and he melts us down. He completely changes. He melts us down, and he pours us into a new mold, and out we come, a new creation. There's another way of shaping metal. It's through a stamp or a punch. And what you do here is you take a, a sheet of metal that's, that's uh, heated up somewhat, and you place it over a mold. Now, the bottom of this mold is negative space. The top of the mold is positive space. In other words, when the two parts of the mold come together, they exactly line up. And what happens is with, with a bunch of pressure, hundreds and, or maybe thousands of pounds of pressure, in an instance, that metal caught between that punch, boom, gets slammed into the form with such power and such intensity, it's over in an instant, slammed, and out comes this, this differently shaped piece of metal through the stamp and the punch. 
Now, I think that uh, that's one of the tools God uses to sanctify us. I think we go through certain times in life and we encounter something very, very painful. We encounter tragedy, and one of two things happens to us. Either it rips us apart, or it forms us into the image of God a little bit more. Now, I wish that that was the normal way of sanctification. I think that's the special way of sanctification. I wish it was the normal way of sanctification. I wish I could go to God and say, God, get it over with. God, just, just in an instant, like lay me out, put me in that stamp, and form me so that from here on out, I don't think the way that I think, I don't talk the way that I talk, I don't act the way that I act, like that I look like you, Jesus. I wish I could just get it over with and just, just one moment be stamped out and the sanctification process be complete. You ever wish that? But that's not how it works. See, there's a third way of shaping metal, and that's by heating and hitting it with a hammer and heating and hitting it with a hammer over and over and over and over again. And it's a very slow process. And you take that sheet of metal and you get it nice and hot, and then the person who's shaping that metal with different types of hammers bangs on it over and over. And when it starts to cool, it gets heated up again and then banged on and heated up again and then banged on. That's sanctification. And it happens every day for the rest of our lives until we're confronted with Jesus and it's perfected and complete. You see, that's the Lord's prayer. It's to take your heart out, softened enough, and laid on the form of this Lord's prayer, and it's saying, Father, I know that you're good. When we say Father, it's implying a goodness. Father, may your name always be kept holy. You're the glorious God. May your kingdom come. Yours is the kingdom that matters. Give us this daily bread. Like you are good and you are a good dad who provides for me. Forgive me of my sin. I trust in your mercy and grace. I'm not gonna fall out of your hand. You have me. And so I'll forgive other people their debts and that mercy and grace you gave me because you're generous. And like throughout this prayer, it's us over and over for the rest of our lives working out that heart and and pounding on that heart so it slowly conforms to the image of Jesus. The section closes with this, verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the, that second, can, could, could you believe? Right? Could you imagine a scenario where a guy was asked for a fish by his kid and he gives him a snake? Could you believe that? And all to prove the point, look, if, if, that's, if that's good fathers, man, God, as a father, if, if that's the standard Man, God stands for what it looks like to be. See, he can meet your need. He knows what your needs are, and, and he has the power to meet those needs. And it's not just meeting your need to survive. It's meeting your need to thrive. And he can give you what you need most. And what is it that you need most? If you understand your situation, and here's your situation. This is where you stand in redemptive history. On this side of the cross, you have been freed from the punishment of sin. Praise God. 
Because of the, the, the Holy Spirit, you have, have the power over sin. Praise God. But this side of Jesus' return, we are still emerged in the presence of sin, and it's all around us. Do you know what we need? We need the presence of God in us. The Spirit of God taking up residence in us, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead in you and in me. That's what you and I need. More than anything, that's what we need. And that is what he generously gives. Paul says this in Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The suffering, that's the heating and the hammering. Heating and hammering. Heating and hammering. I've been praying for something for 10 years. My wife and I have been praying for something for 10 years. Over and over and over and over again. He hasn't given us what we've asked for. He hasn't come through. And I can't tell you why. And God will probably never tell me why. The question is, is in all the silence, apparently, what has changed? And the truth is, is I've changed. My wife has changed. And it's been painful. And it's not that we have less faith. It's just... On a deep level, our hearts look different than they used to 10 years ago. I know there might be some of you who are saying, like, I, I keep praying and God keeps, he's not answering my prayer. And I think I'm praying according to his will. I think I'm praying the right words. I think I'm praying what I'm supposed to be praying. And he's not showing up. Could it be that the work he's doing in our hearts is what we need more than the answer to that prayer? close with some application <clears throat> I know I'm going along I'm sorry but I'm not sorry uh, I'll close with some application I began this morning by talking about the fact that we are hypocrites that, that, that we can look at our prayers and we can see the, the product of our theology we compare that to our confessing theology and see that it doesn't line up so let's look at your prayers let's look at our prayers do you pray do you pray would you look at your prayer life and you say you know what I pray occasionally, and, and generally what I pray for is, you know, for that parking space to open up, or, or if something really bad happens, I pray for, you know, God to take care of that, but if I'm going to be completely honest with myself, I don't really pray in order to be with God. I pray in order to receive from God, but I don't really pray in order to be and connect with God. I want you to follow that down and look at your base theology. Your identity is found in self-reliance and independence. You don't pray because you don't need him. 
You don't need him. And either it's because you think you've got it all made or all put together, or you don't think that he can handle it. And you follow that down even further and you examine what you believe God has done for you. And whatever he done, has done in the universe, it hasn't been good enough or great enough to command your attention and say, I need. And at the base of your theology, what you have is a God who is not great. You have a small God. You have a small God and you prove it because you won't ask him for anything. On some level, you may say with your mouth, God is great. And you may raise your hands in worship and say, God is great. But your prayer life shows you don't think God has the power to do anything other than get you out of hell. Examine your prayer life. And if you would say, God, I pray. I pray, how could you love me? What a wretch I am. Your prayer life is, is full of just, just self-loathing, like, God, I'm, such, I'm nothing. The flip side of the quarter, you might be praying, God, do you see how awesome I did today? Do you see how I loved that person? Do you see how I took care of that person? You see, it's either, it's either pride or it's self-loathing that comes out in your prayer, and what that reflects about your identity is that you need to prove yourself you need to accomplish, like you need to justify yourself because whatever Jesus did for you, it wasn't enough. The cross of Jesus Christ, hey, it may have gone 90 yards, but you have to go the last 10 yards on your own. You have to prove yourself. And if you prove yourself and you justify yourself, then it leads to pride. However, if you fail and you fall flat on your face, it leads to self-contempt. And at base, what do you have? What kind of God do you have? Not a gracious one. You have an ungracious God who's powerless to make up for what you lack, either by will or by design. If you pray, God, give me. Give me that job, give me that car, give me that house, give me. There's a sensational need. Or, 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 or a different way that this looks is, oh, God, I've blown it again. I blew the diet. I'm hungover, I've racked up a bunch of credit card debt, I've blown it, oh, forgive me. All the while knowing you're gonna pray the same thing tomorrow, if you pray. What does it say about your identity? What it says is that you're a giant hole that's unfillable. That you have this need to be filled and you keep looking to created things in order to fill it. And whether it be material possession or whether it'll be a momentary high or whatever it is, you're looking to fill this hole because God is powerless to fill it. Because at base, God is not good. He may be righteous. And I mean, you know, good meaning righteous and, and he'll send you to you know, everlasting torment if you don't figure out this problem but he's not good in the way that he's not good enough to fill the hole in your life. And you never stop to think that maybe the hole exists because he wants you to turn to him to fill it. He's not a good father at the base of what you believe. And what if your prayers are those of searching for affirmation? God, give me success in this job. Help me to get that promotion. Help me people to see what I've done. 
Help people to, to pat me on the back and tell me I did a good job. The flip side of fear of that is, God, God, I don't think my spouse loves me. I don't think my children respect me. There's all sorts of things that come out in our prayer, and what do they reflect? They reflect a heart that deeply needs affirmation, that deeply needs to, to, to once and for all be content in who and what you are. And you don't think that that comes from God, and you don't think that what Jesus has done in order to bring you to the Father so that he can say, I love you because of my son. Like, you don't think it was enough. And at bottom of this, you have a God who's not glorious. You see, you fear everybody else's name but his. Everybody else's approval and affirmation matters but his. He's not a glorious God. He's a small God. You see, if you see him as a glorious God, high and lifted up, and if his name matters to you, and it matters to you in part because you bear that name and you are glorified with him, then nobody else's opinion of you matters. How do you pray? And what do your prayers tell you about what you actually believe about God? And when you see the hypocrisy, and I say when, because we're all hypocrites. And one way to address that is this continual hammering away, the Lord's prayer, hammering away on your heart, conforming it to what he wants and making it look like his. I'm gonna pray, and in so doing, I would like to pray the Lord's Prayer. Will you pray with me? I know it's uh, one of the first slides, and I should have ordered them the right way. John, would you mind going back? Um, it's Luke 11, two through four. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. 